Good morning and Merry Christmas. Would you please rise for the reading of God's Word? Today I'll be reading out of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. A child is born. A baby in a manger born over 2,000 years ago in a land far, far away. If you're talking to someone age 30 or younger, chances are if you ask them what Christmas was about, what I have just revealed to you will be the extent of their answer. A child was born. Whose birthday is it? What was the child's name? Jesus? Just watched a video yesterday of, of uh, I forget his name again, guy wanders down the, the beaches of Los Angeles and, uh, and, and asks all the questions. And he asked that very question. And, and it was very much, Jesus? Did I get that right? right? Ask him who that is though and you'll get a shrug of the shoulders. I'll be honest with you, I find this sort of thing shocking. 
it goes to show the extent to which our culture and society is deviated from our Judeo-Christian heritage. Now, as most of you know, I didn't grow up in the church. I can count the number of times I went to church prior to my 18th birthday on one hand. We went to the United Church twice in downtown Red Deer, and we went to an independent fundamentalist Baptist church only once. Talk about your opposite ends of the theological spectrum. But the funny thing is, is I wasn't ignorant to the basics of Christianity. Well, how is that possible? Was it because I was catechized at home? Not at all. Not at all, actually. I knew about Christianity because our culture still held to Judeo-Christian principles and still openly celebrated Christmas holidays or holy days. I participated in our government school's yearly Christmas pageant. Imagine that. I was Joseph. I played Joseph. Carla, who I had a crush on at the time, my classmate, she was Mary. How cool was that? We had a, uh, we had a Christmas choir. Um, Mrs. Jackson, the grade three teacher, uh, she was the choir master. She was a lovely lady, but the kind of lady that you didn't cross. She liked you. Well, she always liked you. You just didn't cross her, right? She was also my first homiletics instructor. I can still hear in my head today. Silent night has two T's. I want to hear them. So we'd have to sing, Silent night. And that's all you could hear, like the whole choir, spitting teas. It sounded ridiculous, but she got her teas. She wanted her teas, she got them, right? The things you remember, right? Uh, there were always two things I looked forward to back when we got an actual newspaper. Uh, one was the Saturday comics. It was always in color. And the other one was two or, two or so weeks, two or three weeks before Christmas, the Red Deer Advocate, which was our local paper, would include a colored pullout of popular Christmas songs with all the lyrics in them. I don't know if that happened anywhere else, but it happened every year with the Red Deer Advocate. I spat all over myself. Um, and the funny thing was, is these songs weren't things like, Santa, bring my baby back to me, right? Or, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. It wasn't that. They were heavily theological songs like Silent Night, like Angels We Have Heard on High, like Joy to the World, O Come All Ye Faithful, O Holy Night, and so forth. I don't know if I was the only one in Red Deer that poured over those lyrics, but I would spend hours learning those songs. Hours learning those songs and singing them. I love those songs. Occasionally, my mother would encourage us kids to go around the cul-de-sac. We lived in a cul-de-sac. And she would encourage us kids to go around the cul-de-sac singing Christmas carols to the neighbors. Personally, I think she just wanted some peace and quiet so she could... <laughs> Have, you know, she just wanted us out of the house for a while. But it used to be a thing done by many. Th this was a thing. We'd have people show up at our door singing Christmas carols, right? Um, it was a form of evangelism. A form of evangelism that wasn't awkward. 
right? Everybody kind of expected it. And so you'd go around singing these songs. Standing out in front of a stranger's house, belting out joy to the world, right? The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king, right? Unfortunately, our culture, with the help of lawyers and others, I'm sure, have taken all of these things out of society in large part, out of the public square. And what is the result? We have a new generation of people that know next to nothing about the holidays, the holy days that we celebrate. Jesus, born in a manger, has been replaced by a fat old bearded guy riding a sleigh. And don't get me wrong, that was around when I was around and even before I was around. But like I said, everybody knew culturally what Christmas was. The important songs, the theological songs, are largely forgotten by our society today. Our society no longer has what's called a memory. Every society has a memory and we are quickly, quickly losing ours. They're forgetting what Christmas was about. So for today's sermon, I would like to touch on some important themes in the Bible which help us understand better what this whole baby in a manger thing is about. And I'd like to start with Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All the way back to the beginning, we have what's called the good news. All the way back, the very first gospel, a promise of the defeat of Satan. In order to understand the good news, we must understand that there was bad news. And the bad news happened the chapter previous when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, paradise on earth, decided with the help of the serpent that they would like to be like God knowing good and evil. And in so doing, they broke the only command God gave, namely, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. For when you eat of it, you shall surely die. One tree. One tree in all of paradise, they were to not eat of it. And yet, when presented with an opportunity to do so, they believed a lie and they ate of the tree, and they fell from grace. Their relationship to God now fractured, was broken, for God is holy and cannot abide by sin, kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Gone were the days of easy work. Got to remember, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they had a job to do. They were working, but gone were the days of easy work. Gone were the days of pleasurable work. As a result of sin, of law-breaking against God, God cursed all involved. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the very ground. He cursed his creation. He cursed the woman by multiplying pain in childbirth and by giving her a desire to rule over her husband. To Adam, he cursed his labor. Work became hard. Work became very hard, and the results of his labor were less. The ground would spring up weeds, and in the end, both man and woman will die and return to earth. We now live in a world affected by what the church calls 
original sin. Original sin doesn't refer specifically to the action of Adam and Eve on that day, but rather it is the results of that sinful action on that day. And what are those results? The complete corruption of the human race, the fallen condition in which each and every one of us were all born. Ladies, if you've had a child, which we have a few here, you understand the curse of multiplied pain. Nobody here can go, nah, <laughs> right? Multiplied pain. If you've worked the ground, you understand how difficult it is in maintaining a garden or a crop. You can't just go out and plant some seeds and have at her, leave it alone. You gotta work it, right? If you have children, you no longer need to wonder how your children learned poor and selfish behaviors. It's natural, of course. You don't, you don't have to teach them greed, right? They don't have to learn greed. They don't have to learn selfish. They don't have to learn anger. They don't have to learn temper tantrums. Civilization depends upon parents teaching their children to manage and control their children's emotions. A pastor once famously said something along the lines of God in his wisdom gave us small and helpless children that could be easily outmuscled for if he hadn't no parents would survive the wrath of their children. Sin is a universal problem. It affects everyone, everything, everywhere. And I used the term complete corruption earlier, meaning not that we as humanity are thoroughly corrupt, but that in everything there is corruption in us. You are born, guess what? You begin to die. You have the capacity to think, but none of us think clearly. As hard as we may try, none of us think clearly. You have the capacity to reason, but we don't reason clearly. We have the capacity for good, but even our good deeds are stained by sin. We have the capacity to love, but we love selfishly, right? We love not as we ought to. We all have a universal problem, as the Apostle Paul states, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our society has downplayed the importance of this doctrine. See, we use pithy little statements like, we're only human. Billy Joel had a famous song, we're only human, right? Or, nobody's perfect. Here's another one. We just have to do the best we can. What's the problem? Humans have been called to a high standard. How high is that standard? Just perfection. Just be perfect, right? In Leviticus 19.2 it states, Speak to the whole congregation of Israel and tell them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In order to be holy, one must follow the law of God. And they have to do so perfectly. Oh, pastor, you might say that's the Old Testament. Israel was under the law of God, but, but we now, we're under the law of Christ. We have grace. 
perfection is no longer required. But is that what the New Testament says? Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. Some in the dispensational camp of Christianity have said, This is Jesus talking to the Jews that doesn't apply to us. All right. Well, what do you do about the Apostle Peter then? But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Where did we just hear that? Over and over again, we see in God's word that there is a standard to be met by those who are made in his image and likeness. And we fail to meet that standard. Sin is law-breaking. Sin is inherent. We are all born in sin. It is pervasive. Its effects are found everywhere. Sin is vile. Sin is vile and offensive to God, which causes a feeling of guilt on our consciences. We know what our problem is, but in our sin, we are deceived, for that's what sin accomplishes. Sin is a liar. Sin deceives you. We fool ourselves in our sin to pretend that it's not a big deal. But I'm here to tell you today, sin is a big deal. And sin must be dealt with. And in this passage of Genesis 3.15, we have God's promise that sin will be dealt with. And it will be dealt with in a violent way. After waiting for many, many centuries for this promise to be filled and prophecy after prophecy by God's Old Testament prophets, God sends a redeemer. The one who was going to crush the head of Satan, who would redeem God's people, who would free the captives. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the Father, full of of grace and truth. John 1.14 The baby in the manger, as described by Luke, is the Word. Who was the Word? As John states in the beginning of his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was fully man, and he was fully God. This in itself I, I said it's incredible. I didn't know what else word to use. It's, it's incredible. When you study the attributes of God, when you see and understand God's holy nature, when you see His omniscience, He knows everything. When you see His omnipotence, He is all-powerful. When you see His omnipresence, God is everywhere. And then you see the Son, one person of the Trinity, three persons in one God, give it all up. He gave it all up to come to earth, to come into his creation, to take on flesh, to be like those he created in his own image, to be born of a woman is hardly something that can be fathomed. 
This wasn't some ordinary child. This wasn't some ordinary birth. As the scriptures tell us, and was predicted in the Old Testament, Jesus was born of a virgin. You guys might be a little young for a biology lesson, but that's not normal. Right? Generally speaking, we think that can't happen. Right? Mary, the scriptures tell us, never had relations with a man. Joseph was not the natural father of Jesus. Many deny this doctrine, denying that Jesus was born miraculously. But here's the problem. Our unbelieving society today doesn't believe in miracles. They are largely what we may call naturalists or materialists. All there is, see, is stuff. That's all there is. Stuff. All that happens can be explained naturally or in nature. Anything that doesn't fit or cannot be explained by nature or natural inference is to be rejected as not true, meaning it didn't happen. Or that there is an explanation for it. We just haven't figured it out yet. It's the other option. The objection by those today that reject the virgin birth is that Mary either had an affair behind Joseph's back or that Joseph and Mary might have had relations before they got married, right? But by no means was Mary a virgin. Can't be possible. Virgins don't have children, right? The second issue is what I would call the, uh, I call the snobbery of recency bias. Okay? The snobbery of recency bias. We have it in our heads that if it's new, it's better. We should all know that's not true. Anyone who has a refrigerator from 1960s that still runs knows that, that, that maybe, maybe the newer stuff isn't quite as good. Right? This includes our own intellect, of course. How often I've heard the argument put forward that 2,000 years ago, people were a bunch of illiterate sheep herders that didn't know anything. Right? They believed this stuff about virgin birth. Right? They didn't know better. But we, we know better now. We're scientific. Right? We know how children are born and what causes it. This is simply silly on a number of levels, of course. People 2,000 years ago, folks, they weren't dumb. Right? They weren't stupid. We just came back from Italy. And I'll tell you right now, the ancient buildings that are still standing, the Colosseum, the Pantheon, are absolutely stunning. They're stunning. The Pantheon was built over 2,000 years ago and it is still an absolutely stunning, gorgeous building to this day. People were far more intelligent than our current enlightened society gives them credit for. Matthew, in his gospel, makes it clear, crystal clear actually, that Mary was conceived by the Spirit of God and not Joseph. This was why Joseph was originally what? Going to divorce her. Joseph knew better. Joseph knows what causes pregnancy. Right? 
He was going to divorce her quietly rather than loudly, which would have resulted in adultery charges because Joseph knew what causes babies and he had not participated in any such actions. Further, it was an angel of the Lord that informed Joseph what was going on and that he was not to divorce her. Joseph, being the stand-up guy that he was, did just that. He raised a son, a son that he knew was not his. He believed. Joseph had faith that what the angel said was true and he raised Jesus as his own. So why did why did Jesus have to come as a baby? Why did Jesus have to come as a baby? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you'll remember back to Adam and Eve when God put them in the garden and gave them simple tasks and instructions, the church calls this a covenant. God relates to his people via covenants. The covenant between Adam and God is often called the covenant of works. Some call it the covenant of creation. Covenant of nature is another one. In any covenant, there are blessings and there are curses. Blessings, curses. Fulfill the covenant and you will have blessings. Break the covenant and you will find heartache and pain via punishment or curses. By the way, when people hear this sort of arrangement, they think that God's kind of a mean man in the sky. Kind of just sitting there waiting to pounce on lawbreakers. Right? The fact of the matter is, sin comes with its own reward. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. A wage is something earned. If you are a lawbreaker, you deserve what lawbreaking brings. Often in Scripture, we see that sin brings with it natural consequences. Today we have another pithy statement that uh, expresses that truth a little bit. I love it. Maybe I shouldn't love it as much as I do, but the expression goes, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Right? We all understand that when we make foolish, poor choices, we're going to be rewarded for such poor, foolish choices. We get that, right? We all understand the simple expression. Foolishness brings with it its own rewards. So mankind, in our sinful foolishness, and in our sinful law-breaking, we have a problem. We are all, at birth, estranged from God. We have earned our pay. We've earned our pay, namely, death and eternal damnation. That's what we've earned. How do we get out from under this problem? We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. We needed someone to fulfill the covenant that we could not. So folks, a child was born. A baby was born. Jesus did not come down from heaven out of a cloud as a fully grown adult, prick his finger with a nail, and offer blood, and then be on his way. He had to come as a man. And he had to live as a man. He had to live 
a perfect and sin-free life in order to fulfill the original covenant that Adam, Eve, and everyone since has broken. He had to fulfill the covenant. In the Old Testament, God provided a temporary system of, of, of blood sacrifices via animals. It was in the, the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem where these daily sacrifices were done. But this was only temporary. This was only temporary. As the book of Hebrews tells us, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10 verse 4. So Jesus after living a perfect life, after fulfilling the demands of the covenant, went to the cross. And he did so voluntarily. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was put upon the cross. He was made to be sin. He was the scapegoat. He was the one without blemish. So that we, the sinners, the ones deserving the wrath of God, for our, for our hatred towards him and our law-breaking against him would, upon repentance and faith in Christ, would be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. Jesus takes our sins and we receive his perfect righteousness. The greatest exchange of all time, the perfect fulfillment of the covenant of works, could not be accomplished without the birth of a child. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Galatians 3 and verses 13 and 14. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. I think we're all Gentiles here. Right? So great is the transgression against God that is sin in order to pay the price for our transgression. Somebody has to die. Somebody has to become a curse for us. That's how great sin is. That's how serious sin is. Somebody has to die to pay for it. That person was Jesus the Christ, the God-man. He laid down his life for his sheep. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life was the original blessing of the covenant of works. If Adam had fulfilled the covenant of works, at some point after he had fulfilled his duties, God would have rewarded him and mankind with eternal life. Had the first Adam fulfilled that covenant, death would not have come. But death did come. And eternal life is now only available once again by what's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ upon the cross. 
Eternal life in the presence of God and His blessings is not possible without this exchange. If you wanted to know what Good Friday is about, now you have an idea. It's called Good Friday because while being a really, really bad day for Jesus, it was a very good day, a great day for humanity. His sacrifice was a great day for us. God provided a redeemer. God provided a way to reconcile with him. Often we hear from those who object to Christianity that is, we hear it's unfair. Right? God has provided many ways, they would say. God has provided many religions, many faiths that lead back to God. We hear the analogy of what? Many paths, all on the same mountain. The problem with that is, is that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He also said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, <coughs> but the wrath of God remains on him. There is one way to God. One. And that is by repentance and faith in Jesus. In order for Jesus to die upon the cross, to become a curse on our behalf, a child had to be born. And if Christ has not risen, or if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Jesus died and on the third day he rose again. Why? Because death could not hold him. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. And Jesus never sinned. His resurrection is proof of his claims of deity. His resurrection is proof that his promise of a future resurrection is true. Jesus' body is now in a glorified state and when we are raised from the dead, we too will have glorified bodies. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not risen. If Christ has not risen, Paul tells us, then our faith is no good. And we as believers of such a promise should be what? Pitied. No one should be mad at Christians for what we believe. Paul says, you should feel sorry for us. Right? You should pity us. For we believe in a Savior who cannot save. For he couldn't even save himself. He couldn't raise himself from the dead. If Christ is dead, we're all in serious, serious trouble. But he did rise from the dead. His tomb is empty, just like, the, like one day our burial plots will also be empty. See, folks, our faith is not in vain. We believe in a risen Christ, one who defeated death and has defeated death for us on our behalf. Death is no longer something to be feared, for we have hope, hope everlasting. 
In order for Jesus to live a perfect life, in order for him to take the curse and be hung upon a tree on our behalf, a child had to be born. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee! Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Acts 1 verses 9 to 11. Christ has ascended. He has ascended into heaven, the highest point of exaltation until he returns. He departed in a cloud. It was a glorious cloud. It was a radiant cloud. Jesus, unlike Enoch, who was taken directly to heaven, Jesus was taken up with a purpose. With pomp and circumstance, we might say. Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. To sit at the right hand of a king or leader was to say that they had authority over everything that the king has authority over. In this case, Christ Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of God. But what does God reign over? Everything. God reigns over everything. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is also our heavenly priest who intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is ruling and reigning now, right now. He is the presiding judge over heaven and earth. As our older brother in the faith, Abraham Kuyper, has said, there is not one square inch of creation in which Jesus has not declared, Mine! It's all His. Everything is His. You are His. Jesus promised that He would send the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit could not come until Jesus had left. All believers in the world today now have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. A gracious gift of God. The Holy Spirit has come with power. The Holy Spirit has come with power to save. The power to make alive those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. The Spirit has come in order to help us carry out the work that God has placed before us to do. In order for the Spirit to come, in order for Jesus to take up His proper place at the right hand of the Father, a child had to be born. So here's the conclusion. There are three takeaways I want you to get from the message today. Three things. First thing, I want you to know, okay? I want you to know. I want you to know that the story of Christ isn't a work of fiction. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus taught. Jesus did miracles. 
Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended into heaven. And lastly, Jesus will return. When he returns, he will do so in order to judge both the living and the dead. Some to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. Now I want you to know that if you reject what I've told you today, if you reject such a Savior, you will receive justice. Right justice. You will get what you deserve. Justice at the hand of an angry judge who hates sin. But I also want you to know that if you are in Christ, that if you are a believer, that you will be raised to eternal life and be in His presence forever. That you will hear on that great day, well done, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Now enter into my glory. The second thing I want you to know, not know, the second thing I want you to, this is the second takeaway. The second takeaway I want you to get is I want you to go. Okay? First thing was no, now I want you to go. I want you to, I want you all to carry out the commission we as believers have all been given as believers, and that is to disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. This, of course, is called the Great Commission. We are to preach the gospel to all creatures, the Bible tells us, to all creatures. Everybody. Don't be shy. Don't be shy, but go and call the lost sheep, the scattered sheep who have no shepherd. Bring them into the flock of God so that Christ may have his full reward. And the last takeaway that I have for you today is I want you to live. I want you to live and have joy in this life. Have joy. God has given us life so that we may live joyously in Him. The joy of the Lord is our strength, says Nehemiah. This was after the reading of the law of God and all the people were weeping and wailing. But Nehemiah reminds them that in salvation from the Lord, the people should put away their tears and rejoice in the Lord. David writes in Psalm 4, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. God's blessing upon us, blessings upon us, should be manifest in our countenance towards Him. He has given us life everlasting. He has given us His Holy Spirit. He has given us His church. He has given us His Word so that we may know Him better and better every day. Our joy in life should be a reflection of His goodness and kindness and mercy. We as Christians should be the most joyous people found anywhere. Folks, we have a God who gives. 
And on this day, we celebrate with joyful hearts the greatest gift of all, the birth of our Redeemer, the birth of our Savior, the birth of our King. A child was born. Amen.